Well, I'm going to be talking about us today. About all of us. Not just about Albert and John, about all of us. And that is one big topic, don't you think? And also, you know that because you've come to church, perhaps even after listening to the music today, that there's going to be some bad news in this message about us, right? And yet, one of the things I want to say right up front is that I don't want anyone to leave the church today without knowing that from God's perspective, there is always good news available to us. And I want us to know what it is, and I want us to know how we can go in the assurance of that good news. Well, we human beings, uh, there, there are these two sides of us. When I, th- when I thought about what is it I want to say, I thought, well, we need to try to understand why we are the way we are. And there seem to be these two pole opposite sides of us. And I thought, how do I describe it? Well, one of the ways to look at it is our longing for significance. You know, we, we sort of, as human beings, come out of the womb wanting to make sure our lives matter, wanting to be noticed by our parents and friends, somehow sensing that our lives should count, that we haven't just been made to survive or just to exist, but our lives should have some significance in this world. We, we seem to know, even though we're a part of the material world, that just things in the material world, there, there must be more than that, and we've been made for more than that. So we have that side of us that we hold on to, and that I think all of us experience. But then on the other side, we stop for a moment and pull back and think, but wait a minute. I'm just one person in all of history. I mean, in the whole universe, we feel like specks. We, we, we somehow sense we're significant, but we feel like specks in the midst of that. Do you ever feel like that? You know, the Bible talks about it. In the Psalms, Psalm 8, the psalmist was wondering about this. Verses 3 and 4, he said, God... When I consider your heavens, when I just think about the work of your fingers, when I think about how big it is, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is man, what am I, what are we, that you would be mindful of us? It's not just the psalmist too, it's physicists too. Dr. Stephen Hawking, whom I was told has spent a lot of time here in Pasadena and Caltech, and yet has spiritual interests would be standing thinking about how could this be possible that there is a God who knows us? And he wrote this. He said, we are such insignificant creatures on a minor planet of a very average star in the outer suburbs of one of a hundred thousand million galaxies. You don't look all that encouraged at this moment. So he said, it is difficult to believe in a God that would care about us or even notice our existence. How do we put this together, this sense of significance with this feeling of being a speck? And and it's not just an intellectual issue of significance. There is a moral side to this, of of these two sides of us. On one side, we who are human, we are capable of incredible acts of compassion. Sometimes those acts of compassion make it into the news. People who do such selfless, selfless things in helping other people out, sometimes people who sacrifice their, their lives for their uh, nation or community or just for one individual. And then, as we try to discover these people that seem to be the perfect ones, right, who do those selfless things, we find out that they're not perfect. 
There, there are times of selfishness in them, times of anger, times in which they gossip. And when we see them, do we become critical? Well, we do. But really, if we looked at it, we see ourselves, don't we? We have this longing when we get up in the morning to live well. We don't, we don't want to get up and say, I want to live the rottenest life I could have. We don't usually do that unless we become absolutely antisocial. And yet when that first temptation comes up, often we're tugged in that direction. How does this fit together, this, this sense of significance and then feeling like specs? This, this longing, this longing to be good. And, and then at the very moment we've been in church, we make a commitment. No, I'm never going to do those things anymore. We walk out and we do it. Over and over and over. And you can just keep the song going, can't you? Just keep the song going. It seems to me when I think about this topic, it's the third article in our statement of faith about our condition as human beings. It seems to me that in the world that I have lived in, we have just had an explosion of information, an explosion of knowledge about technology and communications and so forth. But we have no deeper understanding of ourselves. We remain a mystery to ourselves. How are we to understand us as people? And I'm convinced, and you, you, I'm a pastor, so you know, but I, I am convinced personally that the only place that I can find a worldview that speaks to us as we are, big enough to help us to understand what's happening inside of us, and that also offers us hope for the future is what I find in this word. Now, I don't have time in the moments that we have today to say everything. I don't know everything. You know that. But I'm going to make just three affirmations. I've written some more in the commentaries that are available online or back at the welcoming desk. But today, just three affirmations that I pray will help us to at least have that basic framework of life as God says it is for us as human beings. Are you ready? Affirmation number one. Stand in awe. Stand in awe. We are made in the image of God. You have a mirror, pull it out and look. Just stand in awe. And if you said, I've looked at that too many times, look around you. It's the way the Bible begins. I pointed this out in earlier messages. You open the Bible and God essentially says, I am here. And I'm going to tell you what I am like. And we see that He is powerful. He speaks a word and it all comes into being. But eventually He gets to the apex, the height of His creation. Have you ever read through that Genesis 1 all the way through? And notice how it's described. Can I just give you a framework for that? The Hebrew poetry is so beautiful. You see it in the English too and you just read it out loud from beginning to end. The Hebrew poetry is almost a rhythmic uh, sing-song type of cadence that goes on. Day one, and God said, let there be. And there was. Day two, and God said, let there be. And there was. It becomes more complex. Day three. And God said, let there be. And there was. And it goes on day after day after day until we get to the sixth day. And it starts just the same way on the sixth day. And God said, let there be. And there was. And we think, I know where this is going. Until we come to the middle of the sixth day. And everything changes. You know what it's like? It's like a wedding. You have a wedding. As a pastor, I'm standing here. 
you have the music that is beginning. It is so beautiful. And the first bridesmaid comes walking down that central aisle and she is so beautiful. She comes to the music, to the cadence, to the rhythm. And then the second comes down to the cadence, to the rhythm, also beautiful. And as each one comes down, one after another, the front becomes fuller, it becomes more beautiful until the sixth comes down and takes her place. And then what happens? Suddenly, everything changes. The music changes. The door is opened. Everybody stands up. And the one who is the center of the ceremony walks down that aisle. That's what you find when you read Genesis chapter 1 after seeing all of this beautiful creation that God has made and that we were able to experience this morning seeing those mountains with the snow on them. Then he says, now I'm going to show you my best work, the center of my creation. And the cadence begins and God said, but then it changes. Let us make humankind in our image, male and female, in our likeness, and let them rule. All creation stands. All creation celebrates and applauds. People made in the image of God. Now you say, Pastor, you get so excited about this stuff up there. Well... What does it mean for me to be made in the image of God? We'd love to have one sentence we could sort of put on our t-shirts today that that sort of says this is what it means that I'm made in the image of God and you don't find one in the Bible. I think if we found one, God would say it's much greater than, than can be expressed that way. So how are we going to understand it? Well, I've taken just the context of Genesis chapter 1 through 3 and come up with five statements. I know it's more than this. I know it's more than this. But as you and I try to understand who we are as God has made us, just make note of these. Number one, as God in Genesis 1 is able to think rationally and consequentially, starting with what is simple, moving toward what is complex, so he made us in his image with this incredible ability to think rationally and coherently. We understand matters of cause and effect, We know that if I do this, that will happen. We know that we can plan for the future because we've been given this incredible ability to think as God has thought. We're made in His image. Stand in awe. Second statement. As God in Genesis 1 and 2 looks at the world He makes and makes moral judgments... So too, you and I have been given this incredible ability to make moral judgments, knowing what is good and what is not good. Do you remember what he'd say after he would create? He'd look at it each day and say, that's good. When it was all done in in day seven, that's very good. And in chapter two, verse 18 for the first time, and that's not so good. And in the same way that God is able to look at this world and know goodness from what is not good, He has given you and me this incredible ability in His image and a conscience within that is able to sense and discern right from wrong, goodness from what is not good, and to make judgments that lead toward what is good. It is an incredible ability God has given us. We're made in His image. Statement three. As God in Genesis 1 is able to create... When he creates, he shapes a world that at the end is so beautiful. 
He has given us this ability not to create out of nothing, but to take what he has made as his vice regents to take what he has made and to bring about that which is creative and that which is beautiful. It's why we're able to have, as we've heard this morning with Ken Miedema, music that perhaps has never gone on exactly in that way before because we've been made in his image. It makes us so that we can paint a painting different from what has gone on before because we've been made in His image. It makes it so that you and I can appreciate what is artistic and beautiful. We're made in the image of God. Stand in awe. Number four, just as God is able to rule and to manage creation so that what ultimately comes out is good. So He said, now in this world, the sixth day as the apex of creation, I'm going to make people in my image and let them rule. Which means you and I have the ability to make a difference in this world. This is why we have this longing to have our lives make a positive difference. We've been created in God's image not just to exist. To be able to make decisions that take that goodness that God created and to maintain it, more, no more than that, to further it and to nurture it into something that glorifies the maker of it all. And then fifth, I pointed out a few weeks ago, just as in verses 26 and 27 of Genesis 1, this one God then describes himself in plural terms, let us make humankind in our image. So too we read throughout the New Testament, God reveals himself as eternally one, but somehow always existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means that the God we believe in has always existed in community. God has always existed in loving, open, honest relationship. And you and I are made in His image, which means you and I are made for community. You and I reflect God's image when we live in right relationship. We experience His presence when our relationships are open and, and honest. We have been made for that. It might be all right for other parts of creation to be alone, but not for us. I was talking about this. You know, I have this group of pastors I meet with on Tuesdays. We talk about these things. I was talking about it. And one of the most fun people in there, those of you who uh, are there but not her, you're also fun. But one of the most fun people is Pastor Carol Kewitt. She said when I said this, you know, my cat doesn't ask the questions that I ask. I wrote this up here for you, didn't I? Because I wanted you to see this great theological statement. She said, my kids came out of the womb somehow created to know that they matter. We're always wanting to know our significance in this world. My, my cat doesn't seem concerned about that. And, and then she's right. So let me just say it this morning as, as clearly as I can. You and all those people sitting with you here in the worship center and everybody who crosses your path when you leave this place, we are made in the image of God. The one who created everything by a word has created us in his likeness. Now, what difference does that make in how we view ourselves and view the world? Well, I'll tell you, I think it teaches us about ourselves. It, it explains to me about why it is that I am so dissatisfied in a day where I've just muddled around and haven't done anything worthwhile, wasted it, because I, I've been made to have my life be productive and creative. Do you see that? It explains to me why I have this unquenchable sense that, that there's more to me than just this material world. This unquenchable longing 
to find something more than just material things can give and why I'm never satisfied when material things come at the center of my life. Do you, do you see that? It, it declares to me that, that that's true because I'm made in God's image. That's why I have this deep sense of significance. And it also changes the way that, well, the way I look at you. Now, you know, I've been here three and a half years and I think I've preached this kind of in every sermon. When we come to Jesus, it changes everything, right? It changes everything. And one of the most fundamental basic things that it changes about us is the way we see people. Now, we see the differences among people, but the rest of the world focuses on, on, on all these differences, uh, racial differences, age differences, money differences, all these things that people think are so important. We see those things... We celebrate them as a part of the creativity of our God, but we see something bigger than all of that. When we see people, all people, we see people made in the image of God and therefore of great, great value. Because of that, we don't write off anyone, do we? And we are never self-righteous. I wanted some amens here. <laughs> the, the only reason... Why we can have a church, as God says, the church should be, where ultimately there will be people from every tribe and language and nation, is that we learn to see people as God sees us, made in His image, and potentially members of His family. It's, it's why Jesus, when asked, what's the greatest commandment? He talks about one, but He says, well, really there are two parts of it. The greatest one, of course, is that we have to love God with all of our beings. But He said there's a second one that's just like it that we have to love our neighbor as ourselves. Why? Because our neighbor is made in the image of God and bears his likeness. And if you try to say, but pastor, every ancient religion said that, then I'll say, absolutely not. Other ancient religions sometimes would say that the king bears the image of deity. But the Bible says we all do. I'll tell you, one of my favorite verses is, is Proverbs 14.31. It talks about how we view people whom the rest of the world views as less than or outcasts. Listen to what God's Word says. The one who oppresses the poor shows contempt for the maker. Whoever is kind to the needy is honoring God. All human life, at whatever stage of development, from the time that life begins in the womb, mark it down, until the very end, all human life, regardless of how much money we have or education we have or do not have, all human life, regardless of our physical or intellectual capabilities or lack thereof, <laughs> all human life is made in the image of God. And even though that image, as we're going to be seeing, is corrupted, corroded by sin, still every human being is worthy of honor and respect simply because we've been made in His image. Stand in awe. Stand in awe. You and I are made in the image of God. Now, do you think I should just end there and have us go skipping out of church? Well, one or two might be. Last night somebody said no. I only had one no. No, they're good. That's all I need. Affirmation number two. Tremble. We're messed up. Now, I'm older than a lot of you. I grew up in a church where the pastor just loved to preach about how depraved we are. 
seemed like he could preach about other things, but when he got into that, he really got onto it. And then he let us know it, and I'd always go out feeling miserable. Now, of course, the Lord has moved me to Southern California, where nobody preaches about that. It's true, isn't it? Now, I don't think we can understand us until we get both sides of us. And I've tried to figure out how do I talk about us in a way that we'll hear it. And I started thinking about uh, uh, Charles Schultz and, and, and Charlie Brown and Lucy. Do you, do you know Charles Schultz? Do you read Peanuts? Do you remember those, those times where, where uh, Lucy would try to show Charlie Brown all of his faults? It makes it into Charles Schultz, who's the brother in Christ. He wanted us to understand human nature in these beautiful little cartoons. He really had some profound things to say, so I picked out a few of them that I think might help us along the way. Lucy says, Charlie, you need me to point out all your faults. It's for your own good. Does it sound like me? I put all your faults on slides so we can project them on a screen. Oh, good grief. All right. Okay, turn off the lights. Now. This first batch of slides deals mostly with your physical faults. Notice in this picture how you... Now, we're going to be looking at slides which deal with your many personality faults. Some of them are quite shocking. Uh, Take this one, for instance. Oh, easy, easy. This is only the beginning. (laughs) Now, these are slides of your inherited faults. Those of you who know theology, you see how profound this is. We're born into this fallen race. In other words, these are the faults over which you had no real control. These will take about an hour to show. <laughs> oh, turn it off. I can't stand it any longer. I can't stand it. I've never gone through anything like that in my life. I never knew I had so many faults. I've never felt so completely miserable. Wait until you get my bill. You see, we can laugh at it, but when we laugh at it, we also know how much truth is there. Just as as Charles Schultz was saying, we have to find a way that he could get through all this covering up. I'm just a victim of this to get right down into the heart of us. So too the Bible does as well. And maybe one of the most powerful places is Romans chapter 1 through 3. It starts by telling us that the power of the gospel is there for our rescue. But then it pulls back to tell us why you and I are messed up and and we need God to come and help us out. And for three chapters, it tells us that men and women, young and old, Jew and Gentile, all of us, all of us have been made in God's image. Yes, and we should know better, but we've all fallen short of what God would have us to be and what God would have us to do. And it ends in in chapter 3, verses 10 through 17, and I've just pulled a few of the phrases out. What are we like as human beings? And the Bible declares there is no one who is right fully. No one righteous. Not even one. There's no one who understands. All have turned away. There is no one who does good. Not even one. And then from head to toe, he describes us. Our throats are open graves. Our tongues practice deceit. Our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Our feet are are swift to shed blood. The way of peace we do not know. There is no fear of God before our eyes. What's gone wrong? How on earth did people made in God's image 
adorned as the beautiful bride, the apex of creation, fall to this. And Genesis chapter 3 tells us where it began. God created people in His image, gave them the privilege of ruling over creation, their lives to make a difference in this world. But they didn't, were not content to be in His image. They wanted to be God. The tempter came. Tim read the story for us. The tempter came. And the temptation was, really, that God's way for you isn't really good. You, you can live better on your own than if you live for God. Now, did he tell you not to eat of that fruit? That's the thing that will really make you uh, uh, happy and have the shalom of God. Well, he told us we couldn't even touch it. See, they just kept making it. We're just like we do. When we see something there, we make it even bigger than it was. And instead of obeying God, there was mutiny. There was betrayal of God. They put themselves in his place. They wanted to be God themselves, and they disobeyed him. And it broke their relationship with God. Let me tell you, there are many words for sin in the Bible, but all of them come back to the same thing we see in Genesis 3, that we are in battle with God. Adam and Eve wanted to run their own lives. They thought, if I make my choice, my life's going to be better. They thought, God said this, that'll, that'll squelch my joy. I'm going to go this way and it will be better. And ever since then, all of us, day by day by day, have this deep inner sense, this is what is right, and then we're tugged toward the wrong. And then we have to make these decisions. Will I go God's way or will I go my own? There's a word for sin that means missing a mark that God had had for us and we fall short of it. There is a word for the beautiful image in which we have made that inside has been corrupted. There's a word for the boundaries in which life is to be lived well that we intentionally always go outside of. But it's always the same thing. Putting ourselves in the place of God. Does this... Makes sense to you? Do, do you feel this? Times where you've even come to church and you say, I know this is right. And then we have this tug and then we have to decide, if I live for God, will He ruin my life? And we go our own way and it destroys everything. What does it destroy? Well, it harms our relationship with God. The, the man and woman hid from Him. What a stupid thing to do. He'd made all of that stuff they were hiding in. It, it broke their own relationships with themselves. For the first time, they, they said, I'm naked, and they were ashamed. Joy was taken away, as we have so often experienced, when we've fallen short of our own expectations. It broke their relationship with one another, hiding things not only from God, but from one another, and then blaming one another. And so this, this history of broken relationships... That's led to broken marriages and broken families and broken communities set into our world. And all of creation was harmed. Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, our decision eventually subjected all of creation to decay. This is what we are. Our, our, our lives are messed up. And we know that it is true. And it's not saying that every part of us is as bad as it possibly could be. It is saying we still bear the image of God, but every part of us has been affected by sin. Our minds, the way we think, our emotions, the way we feel, and our wills, the way we act. And we know it's true. And that's why if we come in and say, this year I'm going to turn over a new leaf, I'm going to be better. We, we can't get ourselves to do it because what we are ha has become marred. 
And to try to rescue ourselves and live a, a different life on our own is kind of like drowning in a, in a flood. And then we say, oh, I'm going to rescue myself even though I can't. And we try to pull ourselves out of the water by our own hair. Even if you had more hair than I do, you couldn't do it. You need somebody from the outside who cares about you and, and isn't in the same danger that you're in to, to come and love you enough to, to pull you out. It's not saying that all people are as bad as they could be. People bear the image of God and do wonderful things. But it shows us why these two sides of us are real. Now, I've, I've thought this. I've thought some people are going to come and say, all right, Pastor Greg, this shows how old you are. Nobody younger than you are talks about the human condition this way. Oh, yeah? Uh, some of you... Catherine Ungerecht and others who are under 30, knowing that I was talking about this subject today, sent me this interesting article that was online on The Onion. Okay, we have some people. The Onion sort of gives you the news and then gives you sort of biting contemporary commentary on the news. And there was one commentary just this past week about this episode that happened in Brandon, South Dakota where uh, a young woman did just a crazy self-centered thing that led to people being hurt and an older woman dying and the whole world acted like they were astounded. How could anything bad like, so bad like this happen? Everybody came in and said, how does human nature get messed up? And people said, that couldn't happen in our community. You hear it all the time, don't you? In our community, we're not Los Angeles. How could it be that bad? I'll, I'll show you the headline. I put it up here. Nation somehow shocked by human nature again. How, how could someone do such a thing? Populous wonders at event that has transpired literally millions of times. I want you to hear how it begins. It sounds like me. As more details emerged of Friday's horrible but relatively commonplace manifestation of human nature in Brandon, South Dakota, citizens nationwide somehow managed to enter a state of shock apparently struggling to comprehend an act that throughout history has happened thousands upon thousands of times. He's just making a comment about how we are. How are we to understand ourselves? The Bible is the place that gives us this understanding of, of our opportunity or longing for greatness and our constant plunge into depravity. What does it mean? It means that when I look at myself, I'm not surprised. When, when I put something in the place of God, or I go this way knowing that God wouldn't have me to do it, thinking it's going to bring me a lot more joy than it ends up bringing. And it ends up being so unsatisfying. It helps me to understand why it is that when I go away that I know, know, know is wrong, but I'm tugged to go in that direction anyway why it is at the end that I feel this shame and guilt and that just something is missing. It, it helps me to understand why it is that even when I put something really good at the very center of my life, why it is that that doesn't satisfy either. I've been made for more. And it really helps us to understand one another too, doesn't it? Because if all the people we see are made in God's image, then this part is true too. All the people we come across are messed up as well. And that's why we shouldn't be surprised when we find people in our world here in Southern California having everything. Fame, uh, winning awards, 
the Grammys and Academy Awards, and those very same people who would seem to have everything that would fulfill life being so empty and still trying to find something somewhere else. We seem to be so shocked, but we know why it's the case. And it's why you shouldn't be surprised if you have somebody you really care about and you thought, oh, I thought we had a trusted and open relationship and they let you down. Why, why you, sometimes you discover the people that you thought you knew well are hiding something from you because that's what we do. And when we hide, relationships are broken and God has meant for us to be open with Him, having Him at the center, open with one another so that we can live as He made us to live. Stand in awe. We are made in the image of God. Tremble. We're messed up. Now I've got to make one more point before we bring the service to a close. Affirmation three. That means we cannot be complacent. Because we're in danger. God is holy. We're in danger when we've messed up His image. But we can be. And the way our article puts it in the statement of faith. We can be rescued. We can be reconciled. And we can be renewed. Hallelujah. All right. I thought with the few moments that I have, the easiest thing for me to do is just to make four statements and to show you a couple of verses with a comment. Statement one. I want you to know as your pastor that the danger the Bible talks about is real. The danger means in our standing with God, our eternal souls, Look at how it's put, Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people. And on one side we celebrate, yes, evil must be dealt with, right? And then the other side we agonize, oh, I've engaged in it. Romans 3.23. All have sinned, all, and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23. And the wages of our sin is death. My comment, when you and I look for imperfections in human nature, we do not start by looking at drug dealers out here to the northwest of our church. And we do not start, as we get older, by just looking at that younger generation. They're messing up. Nor do we even start by looking at the Pol Pots or Hitlers or the dictators in northern Africa and in the Middle East. Where do we start? pulling up that mirror and seeing that that one made in the image of God has walked away from God and we are in danger. And if you come today and you haven't given your sins and your life to this eternal God who will receive them and cast them as far as east is from the west, I tell you your soul is in eternal danger. But statement two, there is a rescue. Someone outside of the flood there is a rescue that is offered, and it is for whosoever will receive it. Who's in the whosoever? Ah, amen. So look, Romans 6.23. The wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Or perhaps the two verses that I've cited the most in my three and a half years. John 3.16 and 17. Look at them afresh. God, the one who made us in his image, so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever, that includes you, whoever believes in him shall not perish our danger 
Instead, we'll have eternal life because God did not send His one and only Son into this world to condemn the world, but He sent His one and only Son into the world to rescue us through Him. Hallelujah. The rescue is available if you will but receive it. It is available through faith in Jesus. Statement three. And when things get right with God, other reconciliation happens. And when God begins to do His work, the reconciliation God offers is beautiful. All right, some of you know I'm on a crusade. I keep talking with people in Southern California who think, if I show up at church and just live the way the Bible tells me to live, it'll wreck my life. And I understand that because it means we we won't be able to go our own way. We keep thinking that if we go our own way, it's going to be better. And I come back to you and say, He made us, and He knows how He made us to live. And Jesus did not give His life to wreck ours. Mark it down. He's not that foolish. He gave His life so that we can live. And look, it, it begins to happen as we're reconciled, made right with God, and then our relationships can be open. There's nothing to fear. Our sin has been dealt with. It's come to the light. And look at the way it's put in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, we become new creations. That old way is gone because the new has come and it's all from God. God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting our sins against us. You should put a highlighter on that phrase. When we give our lives to God and go His way rather than our own, He begins making things new. Just one way. Um, in that group of people I meet with on Tuesdays, a new member of it is Dr. Emmanuel Ezra. He's a part of our church family. He's a surgeon from Sweden. And God's called him to be a pastor. <laughs> and he's here studying theology at Fuller. And as I was talking about this, that, that when our lives are out of filter with God, it messes us up, but when we get right, the pain goes away. He said, Greg, uh, an MRI can show that to us. And he pointed out that the place in our brains where pain registers is the same place in our brains where isolation and alienation and loneliness register. Think about that. We were meant for community. And when our relationships become honest and and open and truth-filled, the pain begins to subside and we begin to live. I just want you to know that when you follow Christ, it may not be easy, but it will be beautiful. And fourth, if it feels like it's taken a long time for God to finish His work in me, I just want you to know that the renewal that God promises comes by His promise to all who are in Christ. That the work He starts in us when we give our lives to Him, He promises to bring to completion to His glory. How did Paul put it? Colossians 1.28. We proclaim Christ so that people can be saved. But then we go on. We, we admonish each one and teach each one in wisdom so that each one can become, and the word is complete, perfect, mature in Christ. The image of God restored. The, uh, Ephesians 1.4. God chose us in Christ. To what end? That we can be holy and blameless in Christ. I look at that and I say, how could that be? I know myself. How can I be blameless? And God says, you will be. Paul wondered about it. Romans chapter 7. 
everything I want to do, I don't do. Uh, The things I don't want to do, those are the very things I do. Can any of you relate to that? Is there any hope for me, he says. And then he says in Romans 8, 1, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is now no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. And not only is there no condemnation, but I'll give my spirit to you, the rest of Romans chapter 8, and I will begin a work that is going to be completed that I'm going to work in all things for your good. And what is that good? That you're going to have the image remade. The destiny we have is we'll be conformed to the image of Christ. And if you've come today and you know that your life is not yet that, and there's a sin in your life that you fully intend to leave this place and to continue in, I give you the most serious warning that I can. God tells you today is the day to give your life afresh to Him. He is ready to take your sin and throw it away. If we confess it, He will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if you have come today and you have never given all that you are to the Lord Jesus as your rescuer, don't leave this place until you put God in the center of your life again. On the other side, if you have come today and you say, but pastor, I made that commitment last week when you preached that sermon and now I've come back and I have failed yet again. Will God give up on me? Will God give up on me? I want to tell you on the authority of God's word, that same text I've been talking to you about, Romans 8, that until God is finished, we will not be separated from his love. That same Apostle Paul who said, I still wrestle with this. I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do do the things I want to do. As he went on, he said, but God is at work in my life and I just want you to receive this word from him. For I am convinced that until God is done with me, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. To Him be the glory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.